No bumper video. We're jumping right in. So get ready. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the pastor of multiplication and networking here at Grace Point. Um, and I have the honor of being able to bring the word this morning. And we've labeled this Sunday as Sending Sunday, right? Intentionally, we want to be really a big part of not of our college students leaving and, and being sent out. Um, but also there's a realization in general, we can come back to kind of the mission of Grace Point, come back to talking about why are we here? Like, why do we do the things that we do when it comes to being followers of Jesus? So I get to share about that this morning. Um, I don't know if any of you guys are like me. I can't stand putting up Christmas lights. It is the bane of my existence. It is the thing that I wrestle with every single year. But because I apparently am an awesome husband, I will do it for my wife. And the reason I don't like setting up Christmas lights, hey babe, um, is I don't like heights. Hate them. Can't stand them. Didn't know that was a fear of mine until a few years ago. I think it was always there, but it came really, really evident um, that it was a legit fear of mine uh, a few years ago. At the church I worked at previously, uh, I was kind of what Kyle is for us here at Grace when I was the, the worship pastor. Uh, and with that came a lot of different responsibilities. Uh, little different hats. And one of those hats was stage design. Terrifying. Almost as terrifying as heights. Because uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make a stage look like... We, I don't know. We, know what, we just bought a big screen. That's what we did. Nothing? No? Okay. Um, so with that, what we do is... I used to like the, used to like the church language. We, we got a committee together. Bring in people who wait, know way more about the stuff than I do. Hey, you're, you're really smart. You, you got great ideas. Let's bring it together. And they had this idea of hanging up lights on the side of our center screen. But the way we would do that is attaching different lengths of lights to a big piece of wood. And then they said, Ben, when we make these things, we want you to go up on a lift and go hang up from the ceiling. <laughs> and since it was a part of my job, I decided to do it. And so uh, they made these things. I, I got the lift up onto the stage. I got it underneath the place where I was going to hang these lights. It's, it's a 30-foot, like that's the size we're thinking. And I'm raising up this lift, and we get a five feet, and that's fine. And we get a 10 feet, and it's a little scarier. And then I get to the top, and I become paralyzed. I legitimately can't move my feet. From the outside, if you were coming and you were seeing me on this lift that was 20-some, 25, 30 feet up in the air, all you see is a guy who's just chilling on a lift. Internally, I was dying. It was dead. I was dying. I was dying. Because all of a sudden what happened was this not truthful statement that came into my head. is like, if this lift falls over, I'm dead. And then I thought, there was one moment of kind of peace where I was like, well, at least I'm dying doing something like serving the church. And that immediately dissipated, and it was like, I, I can't move. And then, and then in the midst of my paralysis, my legs started shaking uncontrollably, which 30 feet up in the air in a lift, the lift started shaking uncontrollably, and we're done. I'm dead. I don't have my phone. I can't call my wife, say, I'm, I'm going to die because a lift's going to fall over. A coworker comes into the sanctuary, and, and internally, I'm freaking out just scared to death, legitimately, un I, I can't control my leg shaking, I can't speak, I can't move, and I'm just sitting there, legitimately just paralyzed. Like I'm, fear was real in this moment. And a coworker at the church comes in and he, he externally, if you're looking up, it's like, oh, it's just a guy standing on a lift. He's not doing nothing, but he's just standing up there. So he calls him, Ben, what, how you doing? No response, because I'm dying. Like I'm, I'm done. 
Ben, what are you, how are you doing? <laughs> Not good. <laughs> and she said, do you need help getting down? Yeah, I need help getting down. And so there's an emergency on the bottom of the lift. It's like, this guy should have been the one who had been up on the lift anyway. He's not afraid of heights. He brings the lift down. We embrace. I hold him way too long. <laughs> like, it was way too long. Um, but it was legit. Like, I was scared. Legitimately scared. And sometimes in life, there's a reality. When I was up there, I just, I forgot why I was up there. Fear had taken over. I didn't know the purpose. And I became paralyzed. And that happens in life. We tend to become paralyzed with purposelessness because either one, we don't know why we're here. We don't know why we're doing the things we do, especially as followers of Jesus, even as humans. You, 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 you wrestle with the question, why do you exist? We all wrestle with it. It's the like, number one thing. Why are we here? And if we can't answer that question, we get paralyzed with purposelessness. We don't know how to move forward. So we move from, from living a life that we were called and created to live to just kind of existing. And that is not the call on us as not just humans, but as followers of Jesus that God has for us. We were created to live a life of significance, not create, created to sit in paralysis, not created to wonder what is this life for and what is my purpose? And so this morning, I'm going to talk about three different aspects of what it looks like to live a life of significance. And we're going to be in John 17. And as we open up the word in John 17, we come to this prayer of Jesus. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context before I start reading the word. Uh, In John 17, uh, actually starting in John 13, uh, there's a moment from then until the end of John 17 where Jesus is sitting with his disciples. In John 13, uh, even a little before that, they gather together in what's called the upper room and they have a meal together. They They share the Passover meal together. It's in this space, in this moment where Jesus does communion with them and tells them to do this in remembrance of me when he's gone. Over the next few chapters of John 13 to 17, he's trying to encourage the disciples. He's sitting up there with them. He's he's letting them know. He's giving them as much encouragement as he can because he's about to leave. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the Last Supper, uh, this is the picture that I tend to think of. It's a painting from Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper. It's really good, right? Like, like, If you just sit and look at it for a while, it's beautiful, to be honest. Incredibly well done. One of the most, I mean, famous paintings out there, right? Famous works of art. And yet, as we look at it, I think it misses the feeling, the emotion, the experience that was happening on that night. Like there's some confusion. It's like there definitely was some arguing and there was some doubting and there was questioning uh, but I think it misses what it might have felt like to be there in that moment with Jesus and the, and the disciples. And so this next picture, I think, gives us a little bit more of a reality of, of what it was like. It was a lot more intimate, I think. I, I mean, Jesus knows he's going to about to die. And so he's prepping him the best way he can, knowing like, I'm going to be gone. He says in John 14, I'm leaving you to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back, but I'm leaving he says throughout these, next, these chapters in the Gospel of John, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit for you. And actually me sending the Holy Spirit to you is better for you than me staying here. In John 15, he gives them this just beautiful um, imagery and picture of what it looks like to remain and rest in him. And in John 16, he's coming back to sending the Holy Spirit 
trying to encourage his disciples in this intimate moment of being together, of what would be the last time he's together with them before he dies, at least with all 12. And he says this at the end of John 16. He says, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. You're gonna have trouble. You're gonna have tribulation. You're gonna run to things in this world that are gonna be tough and difficult. But I said these things that you'd have peace and I want you to take heart because I have overcome the world. And he says that and immediately goes into this prayer in John 17. And I believe it is in this prayer that we see a life of significance laid out for us. So if you got your Bible, if you got an app, open it up, John 17, here's verse one. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, stop, I need to stop here, I'm sorry. I had a guy who discipled me a few years ago and was, it was just pouring into me, helping me become more like Jesus. And he would do this in the middle of conversation. Like, think about that picture. They're sitting together, they're talking, he's making eye contact, they're having conversation. And right when he gets done saying, uh, take heart, I've overcome the world, he immediately starts praying. It's not a, hey, we're gonna pray now, everyone bow your heads and close your eyes. Like, you know, he's like, no, we're in it. Because God is always in the midst of our conversation. We can always continue to talk to God while we're talking with each other. And so he, he even, even showing them this is, is a beautiful thing. So he looks to heaven and he starts praying. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. A life of significance starts first and foremost with knowing God. That's where it starts. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, I, I think I interchange like what it means to be saved and to have eternal life and what eternal life is. And here Jesus in his first opening part of this prayer is explaining his mission, the reason that he has come to earth. He's come to show us the character of God, but ultimately what he's come to do is not just give eternal life, but to allow people to understand that they can experience eternal life right now. And so we talk about being saved as followers of Jesus and as Christians. Because we got word, Romans says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We have a word that says that. And so this idea of, of saved, of confessing with our mouth Jesus is Lord, of, of, of recognizing and believing that God raised him from the dead is the starting point, initial starting point of entering into the family of God, of starting our relationship with Jesus. But that's one moment. What Jesus has invited us into is a life more than just saying yes to him. It's a life of experiencing him, of knowing him. Not just when we die or when he comes back. That's not eternal life. We don't have to wait to experience eternal life for later. We get to experience now because that's what Jesus came to bring. He says, this is eternal life, that they would know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That we would know him. Life starts now, not later, not in the future. We can know God now. That's the mission Jesus came and he accomplished that. So what does it mean to know, right? 
I think that's, that's the question. Then. How, do, how do we know? Knowing is more than just an intellectual endeavor. It's an experiential, emotional, and communal one. Um, think of any relationship that you have. Like, you can know facts about someone, but does that mean you know, know them, right? Like, I know a lot of facts about my wife, but I also know, know her. And it's not just because I have intellectual things that I know, and intellectual things I know about her. It's we've had emotional, real-life experiences together. I know that in the darkest times of her life, what she feels, what she experiences, and what she thinks. Same thing in the greatest joys. We've experienced moments of moments. We experience uh, grief and sorrow and death, and we've experienced life and birth. And we know how we act in those moments. We know the anxiety and worry we feel in those moments. We know how to pray for one another so that we can continue to be encouraged, not just in our relationship with each other, but with our relationship with Jesus. We know, know each other. That's the relationship that Jesus has invited us into, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. It's not just intellectual, it's experiential, it's emotional, and it's communal. And this happens a lot of different ways. There's a reason the psalmist says, he doesn't say, come and see that the Lord is good. He he doesn't just say, like, know intellectually in your mind that the Lord is good. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, he's not saying literally taste God, right? He's saying there's a real visceral, experiential, emotional reality to the relationship that we can have with God through the Son, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What can this look like? These are invitations for us continually, moments day by day, moments by moments, to grow in intimacy intimacy with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I was challenged a few years ago with even my own, I don't know if understanding is the right word, but my own experience in my relationship with Jesus with how I would kind of approach coming to Sunday morning service. And, and, And just... Uh, we were talking about what does it mean to be a disciple? What does discipleship look like? And, and we like to use this definition of disciple here as someone who is being conformed to the image of Christ for the glory of God and the sake of others. And anytime we think about well, what does it look like for me to, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to grow in my relationship with God, a lot of times we think through, it's, it's the silence and stillness, it's the daily devotion, reading your Bible and praying, and those are, yes, those things. But there's also a communal reality to us in our experiencing and knowing who God is and growing in, into intimacy with him. And here's why that's important, at least for me, from what I've experienced and what I felt. There have been seasons in my life where God has been, I've assumed and felt and believed that God has been silent and God was silent. There have been moments where there were lies that I was believing about myself or who God is that I was starting to believe. It was really hard for me to to feel like God was present in certain seasons of my life. And just a few years ago, I was experiencing one of these seasons. And and everything I knew about God intellectually, I wasn't experiencing or feeling. And yet, because our relationship with God is a communal one as well as it is an individual one, I had people in my life, followers of Jesus in my life, who could come alongside me and tell me, a truth and remind me, no, God has been present even if it doesn't feel like God's been present. To remind me, to help me know that God is good and cares and he loves and he's for me and not against me. And I can know that intellectually, but there's something as we go through different circumstances and seasons of life to experience that, that help us grow in intimacy with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
life of significance starts with knowing God. That happens more than just intellectually. It's experientially, emotionally, and communal. Second one, life of significance is satisfied when we become more concerned with faithfulness than fruitfulness. And I will define these and I'll talk about this. But there's something about our life and how we live and this life of significance. It becomes ultimately fulfilled and satisfied when we recognize that faithfulness should be our biggest concern over fruitfulness. John 17, uh, verse nine, says this. I pray for them. This is the disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, I'm not saying that fruitfulness is bad at all. And the idea of fruitfulness uh, is the outcome of something happening that is healthy. Right? If I plant a tree in the garden, if I plant, we had an apple tree in our yard when we moved here in 2019. Um, it has not produced a lot of fruit uh, since we moved here. Uh, but planting a tree, if there's life, if it's, if it's pruned well, if it's taken care of, the fruit of the tree is the outcome of it be, being taken care of, of, of the season of which it's gone through to help grow and produce fruit. So fruit is the outcome. Faithfulness for us as followers of Jesus is the journey in which we go in our own relationship with God. And I think what's happened in our walks and in, in, in Christianity, at least I know I have this temptation, is that so, so much of the time, or at least some of the time, I become more concerned with the outcome of my obedience than the way God is trying to transform me to become more like Jesus through the obedience. Where I know I'm supposed to be obedient. I know I'm supposed to follow commands of God. I know I'm supposed to follow Jesus, but because then that means this will happen. I know I'm supposed to pray for the lost. I know I'm supposed to pray for the family members that I have that don't know Jesus. And if I pray that that means they'll be saved and we become more concerned, which is a good thing, Right? It's a good thing. The fruit is good. But we've come so concerned with the outcome of our obedience that we've lost out and missed out on what God's been trying to do in the journey of our faithfulness. Jesus prays to sanctify them. God, I say you would sanctify them. sanctify them. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And this idea of sanctify is, it literally means to be set apart. And when we use this word sanctification, which really in general means we've been set apart for God's purposes to become more like him, to be holy as he is holy, and to set forth and be faithful in the mission that he's called us to. It's set apart, different from the, the things and thoughts and motives of this world, and pursuing and living under the things and thoughts and ways of Jesus. And so it, a life of significance becomes ultimately satisfied and fulfilled when we care more about and are concerned more about our own faithfulness. What's that next step that God's asking me to do? more concerned about that than the outcome and the fruit of what could be or what could happen. Every one of us in this church, we are the fruit of someone else's faithfulness, even though we probably don't know them and they might not even know. 
Most likely they don't. There are generations past who've been a part of this church or a part of this community who have loved Jesus and their faithfulness to continue to follow and do what God has asked them to do, to pursue that relationship with Jesus, to become more like him in every way has led to this because that's what God does. Let's become more concerned with faithfulness and fruitfulness. Here's what this can look like. Um, before I was a follower of Jesus, I, I always had this desire to want to be a dad. I could never really fully explain it. And there were things that, even as I was growing up, I just, I wanted to experience as a dad. I wanted to be a dad. And so that was a desire of mine. That desire in and of itself is not bad at all. When I became a follower of Jesus, what I had recognized is in my desire to want to be a dad, I think what has happening is I was missing out on what it meant to really look and to be, to be a dad and what it meant to be a father as a follower of Jesus. And so ultimately over time, I had to surrender this idea of wanting to be a dad because one, I'm not fully in control of that. So my desire is to be a dad. And if I don't become a dad and if I sit in that desire and it doesn't come to fruition, I feel like a failure. I feel like my life hasn't found fulfillment. But when I surrendered that desire to God and I said, God, I really want kids and I'm going to pray for it. I really want to be a dad. I want to experience that. In that, how God didn't, he didn't change my desire not to want to be a dad. He changed my thought process of, if I can be a dad, God, will you help me know what it looks like to be a father who raises children to know you, Jesus, to love them, to be gentle with them and calm with them. And then even more to surrendering that desire to want to be dads, like even if I don't have kids, God, I'm still going to follow you. And I just sit with that and wrestle with that. And I'm not going to say that my faithfulness and just surrendering my own desires and thoughts and what I wanted to have happen in my life, me surrendering and say, God, whatever happens, I'm going to follow you. I don't think that's the reason ultimately why we had kids. I think God is just good and he has blessed us in that. But my faithfulness in that moment wasn't necessarily the outcome of us having kids. A lot of times our sanctification is coming into moments and running into situations where God is asking, okay, do you want your thing to happen here or do you want my thing to happen here? Would you like your will done here or would you like to follow my will for this? Pastor Steve, I think, if, man, it's a few months ago maybe, he said he loves, or he has a lot of like young adults, college students, even high schoolers who will come up to him and just, just appreciate him as pastor. They, they'll come up to him and say, man, I just appreciate how, how you preach, how you teach, it seems like, like you just, you have it figured out. And, and one Sunday, Pastor Steve says like, I don't have it figured out. I'm just further along in the journey. Because as we are focused and more concerned about our faithfulness and following Jesus, we get further along in the journey of what it looks like to trust God in all situations and circumstances. And faithfulness happens as we come into those moments and come into situations where we are invited into trusting in God's perfection, provision, and protection. Faithfulness happens when I run into a situation where I don't know, not just the outcome, I don't know how to handle it. I don't know what my role in is in it. it. A lot of this happens for me in relationships, especially with my family. Where it's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to this. This person hurt me or hurt my family, and I don't know how to move forward in this. And faithfulness sometimes in those moments is try to sit and trust that God, you're still good in this, even though I can't really see it sometimes. It's to trust in his protection. When Jesus prays, God, I ask that you would protect them from the evil one. He's saying the evil one's gonna continue to try to tempt us to wanna live back into my will, my desire, my thoughts. And God's saying, protect them from the evil one. Help them as they continue to be faithful in what we've called them to, faithful to become more like Jesus, that they would surrender those things and their thoughts and their ways 
to want to live for our basically God's thoughts, God's ways, God's desires. And in, the, in that, we can trust in his provision because if I'm more concerned about faithfulness than fruitfulness, the God who has never failed is going to not fail me. The God who's invited me into a relationship where I can know him and Jesus whom he has sent is going to, because this is the promise, bring about fulfillment, satisfaction in my life, not through things, not through outcome, but through relationship with him. It's flourishment with Jesus. That is ultimate satisfaction. That's what we've been invited into. And that doesn't mean we can't enjoy other things in life. I love being a husband, a dad. I love being a friend. There's a lot of things in my life that are really good. And I'm continually in my sanctification process of becoming more like Jesus. There's moments where I'm continuing to just try and trust in his goodness, his character, that he's for me, not against me. And even if I didn't have all the things that I did have in my life, Jesus would be enough. It's to trust him. Because the God who has promised will never fail. And what's beautiful about that as we continue to figure out our own sanctification process of becoming more like Jesus, of growing in that grace, as we like to say, is it's never for our own purposes. It's always for the purpose of mission. It's always for the purpose of, of something greater and bigger than ourselves. And it's God's mission for us. The last point, life of significance is successful when love becomes the ultimate motive of our mission. So Jesus, uh, in, in these last few verses, he kind of focuses our attention on the future. So he begins to pray for us who live today as disciples of Jesus. And he prays this. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So he points us to the future and he's praying about us. And what he prays for is oneness. Father, let them be one as you and I are one. Let they be one in us, in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and may they be one with each other. He says that the world may know. And here's why I bring up this idea that ultimately a life of significance is successful when love is the motive. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus says, uh, the world, they will know that these people, the disciples, that they are my disciples, Jesus says. They'll know they're my disciples by how they love each other. So our oneness in being unified and united is so that the world would know. Would know what? Would know God and Jesus Christ who he is. How does that happen? How we love each other. I think a lot of times in this conversation around unity, what we really want is uniformity. Um, Unity is, is one in spirit and one in heart, a recognition of who Jesus is. Uniformity is to say everyone has to look exactly alike, think exactly alike, be exactly alike. And so a lot of the disagreement and division that happens, I believe in the church, is we're pursuing uniformity and not unity. 
as we're pursuing, well, we all have to think this way and we all have to be this way and we all have to worship this way and we all have to be like this. And what Jesus prayed is, no, not that you'd be exactly alike, but that you'd be one in spirit, in truth, and in heart. It's a recognition when I see someone else and I recognize and know that they are a follower of Jesus. Jesus prayed that how we treat one another and how we love one another is one of our best, one of our best evangelical tools to help other people know Jesus. A lot of times in my story, I'll share about how these two kids from around Langford and Pierpont, South Dakota, went to a little small church called Rose Hill Church. And they went to this church and they had a youth group. And in that youth group, their parents were ones who basically, because they had as a one, person, one pastor staff, the smaller church, the parents just raised them up in this youth group. They, they loved Jesus. And then they came to SDSU and two of these kids in this youth group lived across from me in the hall. And, and one of the biggest reasons I share of why I kind of said yes to their invitation into relationship, but also their invitation into coming to church was they just cared for me. Like they just, they showed up in ways that I'd never really seen people show up for me in my life. But what I don't really share and what I don't know if I've really fully recognized until recently is, even if they cared for me well as someone who didn't know Jesus, if they hated or didn't care for each other, it would have been a turnoff for me. Because I would have thought, why would I want to be invited into a situation into this family where they can't even get along and they legitimately look like they hate each other? I got that going on in every other aspect in relationship in my life. But man, they loved each other well. They didn't disagree on everything. Goodness, they didn't disagree on everything. Whole, or they didn't agree on everything. Man, there were some things that didn't matter <laughs> that they had conversation about that I was confused on because I just didn't know, especially when it came to church stuff. But they, they loved each other, man. They cared for each other. And a lot of this idea and conversation around loving each other, I also think we get a little mixed up. Loving each other is not just wanting the best for someone or even wanting my best for someone. It's not complete acceptance and tolerance of all things. See, to really love one another, especially each other in the church and those who don't know Jesus, to love one another is desire God's best for someone in every situation. Not mine, not their, God's. And so to do that even for myself when I'm trying to uh, when I have conversations with pastors and church leaders that I know in, in other churches around the nation, around the state that I really disagree with on stuff, it's like, man, what does it look like for me to love this person, to desire God's best for this person? What does compassion and gentleness and kindness look like even while we disagree? One of the enemy's greatest tools for people not coming to know Jesus is dividing the church because we care more about uniformity than unity and loving one another. And so he's calling us and he prayed and he's asking us, hey, love one another, desire God's best for each other. And in that, as you do that, even when you disagree on things, the world will see it and they'll know. And what will they know? God and Jesus whom he sent. One of our greatest missional opportunities is how we love one another, to desire God's best for one another. So we are called to live a life of significance. And what this looks like is knowing him and making him known. It starts with knowing God, not just intellectually, but experientially. It grows as we continue to pursue our own relationship with Jesus and is satisfied as we care more about faithfulness, what God has called us to and stepping in obedience and trusting him. And then as I really do believe successful when we allow love to be our main motive, to desire God's best 
in every situation and all circumstances. So there's three little application points, things I want you to wrestle with and, and think through this week. What would it look like for you to acknowledge there are more moments than you realize to encounter God's grace? There are more and more moments than you realize, not just on Sunday morning, but through the week where God is already ready. Like he's ready for you to know him in every situation and moments. And what does it look like for you to recognize and acknowledge those moments are there to encounter his grace? Accept the invitation to grow in that grace as we continue to trust God in every situation. That's what's beautiful about, I think, just the life of Jesus. A lot of our maturity or sanctification, becoming more like him, is just saying yes to the invitation to trust him in whatever we run across. It's hard. It's tough. We need each other. That's why it's communal. And then lastly, don't be afraid to press into being a grace giver by desiring God's best for people, because that ultimately is love. As we close this morning, um, I'm going to read over you Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And the NIV version uh, says, I, Paul, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And Eugene Peterson, who's a brilliant man, um, wrote the Message Bible, which is his own scholarly work in interpreting the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and Greek and Aramaic of the New Testament. And so he in his interpretation, wrote this about Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, about what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to read this. I'm going to pray. And we're going to finish this morning worshiping uh, through music. Receive this, hear this. In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. As a servant of the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. Mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction, so stay together both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated in oneness. Father, thank you that you have called us to travel on the same road. And that road is a life of significance starting first with knowing you. Thank you for just that invitation of everlasting life that starts now. Jesus, we do praise and thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. And in confession and repentance and turning to you and saying yes to you, Jesus, we get to start this path to travel on the road of a life of significance that starts with knowing you. Help us understand what it looks like to be faithful in all circumstances, knowing and believing that you are one who is faithful will never fail us help make love the motive of our mission that we would just desire your best for people. We love you. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen.